All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Digging Deeper, episode 52B. Ooh. Uh, we're not counting this as an official episode. <laughs> I like I like even episodes. No, this, like is, even this is a half episode. And a B is kind of like an even number. It's I the guess. two. Uh, and uh, we'll Pastor Mariah is here with me. And we're going to discuss our favorite uh, floral arrangements at weddings <sighs> today. Peonies. Peonies. When I see a peony, I just it's so romantic. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> but, uh, that might be a problem. A quick, quick answer. I was going to say red ones. <laughs> you know, Stephanie Leetwright at her wedding had, um, they were called like black magic. Really? Roses. Oh. It's very emo. That, that, that yeah. Would she like kind of like black fingernail polish and like. That uh, would have fit Stephanie of the time. I, she was kind of goth, wasn't she? She was everything. I mean, mm. if you. You got to go. You got to ask Steffi sometime for some fashion Has she photos. been on the podcast yet? No. Do that. So look forward to that. It'll be coming up on a future podcast. Uh, but let's jump in and uh, talk about my favorite subject in the world. Me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Pete. I'm here to help. I'm here to help. Oh, this podcast is going nowhere fast. <laughs> Where's Brandon to lead this thing? Uh, I don't know. So, uh, yeah, what, what should we talk about today? I was trying to see if I could come up with some sort of a pun to kick us off with, mm. like in lieu of like Robert's, yeah, like our celebration of his punniness. Nothing across Because I was there when he did the Switzerland pun. It was just. And it just cut us all off guard. It was crazy how fast it was. <laughs> so exciting. Like there's a part of me sometimes that, have you ever had that moment where you're like in the shower and you think of the things you wish you had said during oh, that one conversation. I rehearsed like, If things. I could go back in time, I would have said this and it would have been great. And everyone would laugh. Like Robert does that in real time. It's really incredible. Now, I don't if we lined it. up as a percentage though, right? He doesn't hit a hundred percent. Well, nobody does. You know, but he's a good 80. Yeah. I'm not up on the stage telling all the terrible ones that everyone just goes, oh. You did get up on stage and out to everyone that I'm claustrophobic. Yeah. Well. Thanks, I, bro. I, I, uh. I was freeing you and letting you out of the box. Is that a pun? Is that close? Yeah. Okay. All right. In all seriousness, when I was about like maybe six, we were at a friend's house and they had a horse trailer. And in the front of the horse trailer was room for one bale of hay. And my brothers convinced me to get in and then they locked me in. And that was my very first memory of being claustrophobic. How long were you in there? 20 seconds. Oh. I mean, for me, I thought I was there for like hours. I was like screaming and kicking and crying and my brothers were like, oh, and to this day, hmm. it might be my youngest childhood memory. How does being claustrophobic play out in normal parts of your life? Are there other elements that it affects you or is it just, because I wouldn't think there's a lot of moments. It's like, ah, claustrophobic. Yeah. So like my dad had a Mustang when we were kids and that was two door oh, and he put dang. me in the back seat where there was no door to get out. And I remember just like as a small child, like breathing Were you in fast. a car seat? Were you even seat belted? <laughs> I've definitely seat belted. I rem I have these vivid memories of driving home from like my grandparents or half hour away, and it would be like nighttime, and I would like crawl down into like underneath where it was like kind of warm and against the wheel and lay there. And I just remember having that. I'm like, oh. I wasn't in a seat. I, I was like, forget car seats. I wasn't even buckled. <laughs> and so well, there was this moment where uh, we lived in Illinois, but we were originally from Wisconsin and a lot of our family was still in Wisconsin. And we were about 20 minutes apart. And so we, I did like piano lessons and family still in Wisconsin. Wisconsin passed the seatbelt law before Illinois did. 
So we would, or or it might've been vice versa. I just remember driving one direction and the big sign, like, welcome to Wisconsin. Like, oh crap. And we put on our seatbelts and then coming home, as soon as we passed that sign, yay, we're free. And we'd be bouncing around the car with that seatbelt. How old are you? I I feel like seatbelt laws have been around for a long time. No, no. I was probably second grade, third grade. I moved to Illinois in third grade. So that would have been probably 1986. I just wasn't born yet. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, uh, a lot of things seem like they've been a long, a long time. And when did you realize they're actually not that long ago? Here it is. Well, back on track now. Yes. Um, how does it feel to be the person who's in charge of the part two? Do you feel like, like, did you wait for Brandon to finish a sermon? And then you're like, here's the 10 things I wish he had gotten to, or is it harder? Like you're not going to make up your own sermon. I want you to finish my like finish each other's sentences. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Um, we finish each other's sandwiches. Exactly. Uh, Thank you for the frozen. That was frozen good. Reference, you know, we for all the little kids. children listening. Uh, well, in just to, I guess most people that listen to deeper have heard the messages, but uh, yeah, so we did, we kind of broke up the one topic of temptation into two parts. Mm-hmm. Brandon did one last week and I finished this week and it wasn't, um, I guess I would say the, the the way it came out was we meet every Monday, our kind of sermon planning team with creative department, and we talk through where we're going. And it was a couple of weeks ago that Brandon was talking about the first week uh, where he was talking about, he's where I'm going to temptation. And it created a conversation among us, kind of what about this and what about this? And it was like, oh, you know, there's no way we could do that in one week. Mm-hmm. So I was, when he had built out the preaching schedule, um, the topic was actually different it was really a topic I wasn't that interested in. So as we started talking, it's like, he brought it up. He's like, well, what if we changed and next week you sort of did that half of it? I'm like, great, cool. So, um, so I pretended like you. that wasn't my agenda the whole time. <laughs> it doesn't bother you to have like, like how many days before your sermon does it bother you if it gets changed? Like if two weeks before he changes, it's like, whatever, I didn't even start. Or yeah. like two days before it gets changed, are you panicking? Uh, I don't, that's hard to answer because I don't, I, I, other than like someone getting sick and being thrust in last minute, mm. nothing would ever change that soon. Um, I'll always know where I'm going at least a week before. Um, I guess it depends. Uh, I, I, because I don't preach as often here, I have more time to let uh. things ruminate. So I had a couple of weeks to kind of think about it. And then usually I'll just, I, I have a, I'll use the notes app on my phone and I'll just, over a few days or so, whenever something pops in my head, I'll write it down. Usually about Wednesday of the week I'm preaching, I'll actually sit down and begin to craft it. It's coming together. Wednesday and Thursday, yeah. So anything that changes before Wednesday, I'm usually ready to flow with anyway. So I've worked at churches before where they plan out their sermon series months in advance Yeah. down to like the topics. Like they write them in a group setting in a flurry. And then they review them the week before they're going out to like add context and stuff. Yeah, I have too. Um, I think the the where that really becomes a big issue is churches that have multiple campuses oh. and a lot of moving parts have to be way more prepared. Or you align your kids' curriculum with your yeah, adults' curriculum. Yeah, things like that. I, I think with us um, being, we're still a bit smaller, you know, we're not quite at that stage, uh, whatever. Um, we can be a bit more flexible. Uh, I I would say though, like right now, we probably have every week planned out through June or so, mm-hmm. but they'll change. Uh, you know, I, I, one thing about working at Rice City is um, 
it's, and I like this, it's part of who I am. You got to be flexible to work here because it's like, here's the next six month plan. And it maybe will be like 50% of that when all is said and done. So the preaching calendar, Brandon will do it. He'll write it out. He'll assign dates and topics and things, but it tends to shift in, like this one, this one changed last week. And so, um, so who knows what the next one will be, but I like that. Uh, yeah. It's so very you, flexible. You say you use your notes app. So what did you put down on your notes app this week that you're like, I can't have, I can't do that. Either it didn't fit or you didn't have time. Yeah. Uh, that's, I mean, that's an interesting question in, in general, probably even more poignant with this message. So hmm. every time I preach, um, you know, there's always like, it's never the same, I guess, but sometimes there's this challenge of you'll be given a topic or you'll think of a topic you want to talk about. And you almost like you, you, you're suddenly back in college and you're like, I have to write a 10 page paper and I've got like it's four pages <laughs> or like, like, you're like, you're like halfway and you're like, um, and in summary and to repeat, and like I said before, you're just trying I'm to sure fill I space. Pull like, in something about someone I, here. Can I, can I do like the triple spacing here to fill 10 pages. Uh, sometimes that happens. That's that to me is the worst. Mm -hmm. If, and the reason it's the worst is because if I don't feel like I can fill the space, I don't feel like it's a good topic and I don't want to preach about it. Oh. Like if I'm having trouble filling the space, this shouldn't be a, pre this should, we shouldn't be preaching on this. So that's, that's pretty rare. It doesn't happen very often. Um, and when I say fill the space, I have, I've been doing this long enough that I know exactly how many pages I need to fill a, 38, 40 minute message. So I need to be right in the middle of page seven. And then I'm, that's my timeline. Mm -hmm. uh, so what's really hard is when I sit down and start writing and I get to like page 12 and I'm like, Oh, crap. Ooh, I haven't landed the plane <laughs> yeah. yet. Yeah. And all and, the kids, people are thinking, yeah. don't you give me a 55 minute sermon. Well, man. And then they were also, we planned the whole chicken wing eating thing that if you, if you were there. Oh, in yeah. So there's a part of it that was like, oh, this might be tight. And it was tight. Both services, I was like right up the minute. So a big part of my process this week, I even came in on Friday, which is a normal day off. Um, and then I just had to cut, I kept cutting and editing and taking things out, trying to make it fit. Um, I also struggled a little bit with this, this like a sense that is this too, is it too heady? Is it too complex? Too like philosophical. To, too philosophical, how to make it simple. I never want to preach on a Sunday morning and it be completely philosophical and never have a practical takeaway. Mm -hmm. um, I'm okay in like a classroom setting being completely, right. this is all theoretical, but on a Sunday morning I want, okay, if there's something heady or philosophical, how do I actually take this and apply it to my life? And I had already well written past my page limit before I even got to anything remotely practical. So I had to go mm. back and just cut a bunch of stuff to try to fit in that last eight to 10 minutes of practical application. Um, so that was probably the hardest thing this week of just making that work. So. Is there anything really cool or a funny story that you cut? Funny or just story. more like I had 15 scriptures to go over. And I no, I, there were a few things I, I would say number one was, uh, Last week, Brandon briefly touched on a very heady philosophical question. Um, theologians call it impeccability. And really, the question is, Jesus is fully God and fully human, which itself is mm -hmm. a paradox. Um, was Jesus capable of sinning, but just managed not to? Mm. Or as God, 
Was he actually incapable of sinning? And so the way it's often said is, was Jesus not capable of sinning or capable of not sinning? That's kind of, and I had to write a paper on that in seminary. Uh, like the question really is like, are you, if you, if you have to choose between fully God and fully human, are you leaning towards fully God? God can't sin. Mm-hmm. Or are you leaning towards fully human? Well, humans can sin, but somehow Jesus was able not to. And last week, Brandon uh, play, showed his cards pretty clearly saying Jesus was fully human. So sin was on the table, but he was able to overcome it. Mm. And I know many other Christians would say, well, that, so, I, some would go as far as to say, like, I almost think that's heresy. I like, I think people who say that's heresy it's, are being it's ridiculous. Very but. interesting because it's very close to the Jehovah's witness belief also. of um, they, like their belief of Jesus is that he is the greatest man to ever live. And I actually was given a book with that title by one of my Jehovah's Witness friends to read about yeah. Jesus' deity. And then the yeah. Mormon church believes, like in their um, their teachings of one of their presidents, um, Snow, who was a couple presidents after like Joseph Smith, that doctrine of exaltation, where God once was human as we are and became. Yeah. So it, it, there, those two kept running in my mind as we're having this really tricky discussion about fully human, fully God. Right. Yeah. And, you know, Mormonism, which I, I wouldn't, I mean, it's not a place to get into necessarily, but Mormonism is essentially a new formation of Aryan beliefs from the third and fourth century that Jesus is divine, but he's, he, there was a, he was a created divine being. Um, and so like that he's in some ways almost like a sub God. And as he is, you too can one day become. Yeah. We become sub gods too. And and like, that's, that's something that the church dealt with 1500 years ago and <laughs> came back in the 1800s, um, a different form, but in the sense of like, even believing, even being what we would call like Orthodox Christian, like ortho right thinking, Orthodox thinking, um, believing that Jesus is fully God, but also became a full human being the problem of sin is very difficult philosophically because he didn't sin and where it really lands. And I think why Brandon feels this way, I even talked to my father-in-law a bit of it during the Super Bowl the other day, uh, the desire to focus on his humanity and say he was actually capable of not sinning. Mm -hmm. Like he had the power to not sin because that's what, um, it's like that opens the door for you and I to follow if he was never capable of sinning, and this is the argument, then temptation was never actually real. Right. Uh, now, there's people that phil- philosophers find a way to get around that, but this side of the argument says he wasn't really tempted if he was never capable of falling to it. So what I came at it and I said, I, I think I leaned to that side. Um, but the way that I leaned into it was to say, when I call Jesus fully human, I'm actually saying he's something different than we are. And so putting that separation between what we are currently and what he is, I almost, I guess I almost looked for a middle ground. It was. That's how I felt about the presentation of that Hmm. theological take was that it was this middle ground because what, what can accidentally happen is the idea of like, well, if Jesus was fully human and he didn't sin, I can be like him. Like I can aspire to not sin either. Right. And there are like denominations that really push a sin-free life is the goal. And sure. and that's an interesting theology in itself because that is an enormous weight. I'm not sure a human can hold in our fallen nature. I think that's true. I also think 
if I, I don't want to completely veer off subject here, but I do have some experience in this. Some of that can be a misconception of the holiness movement that came out of John Wesley. Mm. So John Wesley believed that a human could be perfect. He said that out loud. And it was like, you had an entire spectrum of Christendom saying, what the, <laughs> what are you talking you about? You first, John Wesley, you, <laughs> and you go first. what was hard about that is, um, it turned like the whole the entire holiness movement that was spawned off of Wesleyanism, Methodism. Oftentimes, it felt like, whether internally or just from our perspective, there was this sense of like these people believing they could actually be completely holy and sinless mm-hmm. and perfect. Uh, and it from from the outside looking at that, you'd be like, "That's stupid." <laughs> uh, but once you dig into it. And, I, and again, I, I realize we're going in a different direction here, but that's okay. Um, what Wesley was actually getting at was understanding what, I, and to be honest, if, if I could, sometimes I, you know, we've talked about this, I would love to like rewind the clock and convince some early translators to use different words when translating the Bible because they're so ingrained in us now, mm-hmm. we can't change it. Perfect is one of those words. So Jesus says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And that's like, oh, I can't do that. But what's the challenge there is he uses this Greek word telos or telos. And it's the same word he used on the cross when he said to telestai, it is finished. Mm. Um, so when he said, be perfect as your father in heaven, is perfect, or even Peter saying, be holy as God is holy. We think of perfection as completely without error Don't or free, up. like no mistakes, Telos means become what you're created to be. A complete um, whole? Telos really means uh, achieve an end goal, like ar- arrive at something, aim at something mm-hmm. and that get That does have a different, insin- like a different... Yeah. So if you want to say be telos as God is telos, it's complete could be it. Um, and perfect, can, you can translate telos as perfect, but um, really it's saying like, there's something that God intended you to be. And I, and I think at the core of it is saying, regaining the image of God you're created for. Mm. I think even when we're called to be holy as God is holy, it's like you were created to look like God in a real way, in the way that you live and behave and manage your resources in your life, like be that. Um, and so even in saying perfection, mm. I, I don't think Wesley ever thought a human can go the rest of their life without doing a single bad thing. He was saying, I can live my life moving in this direction of loving God and wanting to please him in all things and and seeing my life transformed and changed into that image. So it was a, it, it was way taken it was taken much more strictly than I think he ever meant it. Man, words. Words are a big deal. Yeah. Words. I'm a, um definitely a perfectionist. Like when I first studied the Enneagram and I was a type 1 which they call the perfectionist, I skipped that chapter entirely. It's like, I can possibly be a perfectionist because I can list 10 things I'm not perfect at right now. <laughs> so I what skipped the chapter. What an odd thing to say. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, those those types of verses could feel like such a big weight. Like, uh, I, like, have contemplated, like, hmm. it hurts me to, con- like, in some ways, like, continue existing because I know I'm going to make mistakes and hurt people. Hmm. And it's like, oh, gosh. Um but there, there was a Brene Brown quote once that said, if I'm perfect, who can shame me? And the idea that like perfectionism is a giant coping mechanism. 
that if I could just be perfect enough, then I'll be good with everyone. Oh, like in her, in your head, seeking perfection. So you're not shamed. Yes. <clears throat> Interesting. You know, and the idea, it was Jesus fully human and yet chose not to sin. Hmm. Like puts the perfect bar really high. I think I, I, at the risk of sounding like I'm changing the conversation, you see where I'm going here. One of the other challenges I had with this message is number one, how differently people are wired. Mm. Number two, how differently some of our struggles are. Um, and number three, how overly simplistic some of the stuff I was saying can be construed as. Um, those are the three things that were really on my brain the whole time. And I wrestled with a lot of them and how deep do I go each of them? Um, but even like, so you said like, I'm a perfectionist and I really wrestle with this idea of trying to be perfect. When I sit down to write a message like that, that's not anywhere in my brain. I, I don't think about it. I've never felt a need to be perfect. I think I also, I think the way that I'm wired, I don't, I don't wrestle a lot with things like shame or guilt. That sounds great. But I wrestle with uh, embarrassment. Oh. Um, I wrestle with like, I don't want you, it's not like I feel like I'm a bad person, but I want your respect. And mm -hmm. if I make a mistake, then you'll respect me less. Like you won't hold me in higher esteem, which is actually really what the roots of the word shame actually mean. Like I desire to I desire to like have a place of prominence in your brain. I want you to think highly of me. And if you see a mistake or something wrong with me, or I do something dumb or say something dumb, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not as, as I don't know. I'm lessened in, in your mind. And that worries me. Mm. Um, and I think that's what's like, again, people just wire differently. Right. So like when I think about sinning, that's often, I also think about the impact it has on my job and my life and my, you know what I mean? Like mm. it's almost less personal and more like, Oh, if I do stupid stuff, it's going to have gonna, these ripple it's gonna effects. Affect me. Yeah. It's going to come back. It's going to cause problems. So everyone is wired differently. And thus the way they even think about these ideas is different. And so for me to get up on a stage and be like, okay, we're going to talk about this thing to everyone listening and everyone online like and all their history. Yeah, how do I, their how do I keep this in a way that like it somehow applies to everybody? And I guess at the end of the day where I went was, I know we're all in different places, but at the end of the day, truth is truth and lies are lies. And I can talk about that. I think the human condition is universal in that we believe lies over truth. So that's where I went. The idea of renewing your mind, I thought was just incredibly powerful hmm. because we get wrapped up, depending on our subculture, we get wrapped up and we can start to think crazy things are actually true. Yeah, like you can start to think that own, the type of car that you own literally changes your value. Mm -hmm. If your subculture uses that as a, a status symbol and the, the idea of like spending time, like clocking reps in the Bible and renewing your mind is so powerful. Yeah. It, it's, I think it's everything. I'm going back to your other question about what got cut the biggest thing I cut out was I had numerous verses about spiritual warfare um. <laughs> and even responses to those verses and talking about, um, so where I, and it was fun. I literally like, if you could see those notes and they don't exist anymore, I deleted them, but numerous back and forth. Well, if I say this, people will say this and then, which is how Paul wrote the book of Romans. You might right. say, but I, I would say, and then you're going to say, that's why it's confusing. But like one of the things that I wrestle with is, there is this constant tension that exists 
among Christians between the spiritual and the unspiritual. Mm. Even in, in a class I'm teaching right now, uh, we're looking at some of the Old Testament prophets and you know, one person says, if you don't believe this prophet did this or this, you're an unspiritual person. And it's like, well, hold on, hold on. You know what I mean? And if you make spiritual warfare out to be all, you know, demons flying around me all the time, people over here are like, that's crazy. But if you make spiritual warfare to be, it's all just about, you know, what you think in your brain and there's nothing spiritual out there. Well, that's not biblical either, you know? Yeah. And so the, I came to a point in writing my message where I'm like, if I even hint at any of this, I'm going to be 20 minutes over. <laughs> He's got five more and pages I just of follow up. Cut all of it. Um, but it was so interesting. It was hard for me because it really was, it is part of the story. And to do a whole message on overcoming temptation and not get into any kind of spiritual warfare, which I believe that all spiritual warfare is mental. I think all of it is. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe there are spiritual beings. I think that's in the scriptures that are for and against us. But I believe that those that are against us, what the Bible calls demons, have no power over me. Right. And I, I think, I, I don't have time, but I can. I think this is blatantly clear in scripture. The only ability they have to do anything negative in my life is lie to me. And so- Which is more powerful than we might right. give it credit for. Which again, brings us all the way back to the same idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, am I believing lies? And so when Paul talks about spiritual warfare- like his sort of like, I think his seminal statement in Corinthians is we wrestle not against flesh and blood, powers and principalities. Mm -hmm. And then he says, here's how we fight them. We demolish strongholds and tear down arguments and pretensions, which are ideas right. that exalt themselves above the knowledge of God. So he's basically saying we tear down castle walls that have been built up that are keeping us from the truth of God. That is spiritual warfare. And even when he gives us all of his uh, armor that we're supposed to put on in Ephesians 6, you know, sometimes I see people break each piece up. The whole armor is truth. The whole armor is like, are you trusting what God is saying and living on that? Or are you allowing lies to influence you? So I wanted to get into that. But then I was like, if I get into spiritual warfare, I, I got to I gotta go so many different directions. I was more thinking if you yeah. get into the definition of truth. That the definition is of truth? Oh, so, like, you know, you speak out against lies, you go for truth. Man, that word is under war. Like people are at war to define what truth means. Mm. I think, I suppose that's true. I, I think what they're doing though is they're not, no one is arguing about, they might say they are, but no one's arguing about what the what the word truth means. They're arguing about where truth comes from and who has it, which is the heart of postmodernism. It's not that like even postmodernism at its core doesn't believe there's no truth. They believe that we don't really have access to it or the people who say they do are just trying to abuse us or use us or on us. And would you define truth then? Truth is that which is a reflection of, an accurate reflection of reality. Reality as in like what's <clears throat> literally physically happening in front of you. Well, whatever is real. So we might be in the matrix, mm -hmm. but if we are, that's truth. So you're not, you're like, no matter how deep you try to go down a rabbit hole, you're still not redefining truth. All you're doing is saying, I actually think it's harder to get to truth than you think you do. So I what am. people are saying is you say something is true because you think it, you're, you you think this world is real, man. <laughs> you know, take this pill, you'll realize it's not. I mean, we're all you're, you're not denying that truth exists. You're just saying that you're currently deceived, which is at the core of the entire message of Christianity. Right. That human beings are not experiencing reality properly. Um, you know, and it's it's that's why one of the Greek philosophers that 
medieval Christians were so into is Plato, because if you've seen the movie, The Matrix, that's all Plato's philosophy. Like we're living in a shadow realm, basically. We're, we're staring at shadows on a cave wall when reality is outside there and we gotta go find it. Like we're not, this isn't real, you know, that whole idea. Christians, like, you know, especially uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas, others like that, mm-hmm. really like that idea. Like, yes, that's true. Like we're, we are even Augustine was a Neoplatonist, but then kind of gave up on that and became more Christian. Like there is something false about our reality. And what Paul says though is it's actually not your reality that's false. This world is not false. Your brain is broken. So like where Plato would say all the world around us, you need to escape these mortal bodies and your spirit needs to go up into the ether and all this kind of nonsense, like Scientology and all that kind of stuff. Paul is saying, no, no, this world is fine. <laughs> the problem is your brain isn't functioning properly. It's that we're depraved I used yesterday. Yeah. Um, so the problem is here, not out here. And somebody listening to the podcast has no idea what I just meant because I made sign language hands. And <laughs> <laughs> I that, pointed to my brain for those listening. <laughs> to hear you talk, that's actually the one of the main goals of Christian therapy, Christian counseling. It's the goal of Christianity in general. <laughs> is to assist you in realizing this thought pattern you have is actually not oriented to reality. Sure. And like helping you to, to see that. Yeah. And all therapy is because all therapy is rooted in philosophy mm-hmm. and philosophy, the love of wisdom is the search for truth. And so if you go back to the original Greek philosophers, they all believed the same thing. Like they wouldn't have said anything. They would agree with everything I just said. So Aristotle, Socrates, mm-hmm. Plato, the idea was your brain has bad thoughts and those bad thoughts lead to bad behaviors called vices if you have good thoughts, it'll lead to good things and those will be virtues. And if you want a good life, you dynamea, like the good, the, the goodness of humanity, you need to think the right things and it'll bring about virtue in your life. The issue though is a Christian or a Jewish philosopher mm-hmm. could talk to a Greek philosopher and say, I'm with you. And so did like Philo of Alexandria, he, a Jewish philosopher. He's like, I'm actually with you. I agree with you. Here's the thing where you think you're getting virtue, the good thoughts and the bad right. thoughts, where do those come from? Like, where are you getting those good thoughts? Because Philo would say, you're making them up. Moses got them from God, right? And that's really like all of wisdom tradition going back to the Garden of Eden of saying like, where are the good thoughts coming from? What are good thoughts? And I did a whole message on that a few months ago. Like the whole Garden of Eden story is like, what is good? What is actually is a good thought? What's a bad thought? What, What beliefs will lead to good things and what beliefs lead to bad things? That's what we're arguing over. So when two people are yelling at each other on Instagram, and they're like, oh, this is true, and that's true, and they're going at it. The reason they can't find common ground is because they're not sharing the same source of truth. Like what you think is good is leading you to, I think this is good and this is bad, so therefore all of these things follow that I'll argue about. And this person over here is saying, well, I don't think that's good. I think this is good. Um, And the most common one today, obviously, is just like tolerance, right? Like tolerance has become the greatest good. If that's your greatest good, then anything intolerant is evil. Well, you've started from a different place than I have because I don't think tolerance is the greatest good. God didn't tell me tolerance was the greatest good. So that's why it's so hard to have conversations with people who don't share the same worldview because our starting points of what is good are different. I can look at a Greek philosopher and say, yeah, I agree with you functionally how this works. Everything I said yesterday about the scales, temptation, all of it, Greek philosophy, yep, we agree. The biggest difference is what does balance those scales properly? Right. Where does that truth come from? 
And a Greek philosopher would just say, oh, we just got to look at the universe and talk to each other. Most philosophers, like, or not most therapists, like Freud, would mm-hmm. say, you just got to look internally. We got to study the human mind. Right. Hawking said we need to figure out the nature of the universe and then we'll know the mind of God. All of that is humans trying to get at what is the source of truth, of goodness, of what is, tell me what I, to know what is real, what is true, what is good, and then I can appropriately act or behave. And Christianity is a worldview that says you'll only ever get that when you fear God. Um, and so that is, uh, will all be outlined. That's a mic drop. In a book called Like Stars that <laughs> I'm writing. A, a promo. <laughs> that will be released in 2047. Oh, post, Pete, it'll be Seriously. <laughs> well, if you'd pop by the office anytime, you can pretty much see Pete and I engaged in one of these. Uh, back and forth <laughs> philosophy. Brandon will walk out and he'll be like, oh gosh, and he'll go back in his office. And it usually ends with us yelling at each other about how much we should value animals. <laughs> <laughs> Which I also, I, you know, I do like animals. I I'm was not. trying to teach the preteens about like love, like from Jesus' perspective. And I was trying to figure something they could relate to. And I said something about giving your life or, or doing something for your puppy. And Shepherd Grant's like, but I don't like puppies. <laughs> Who cares if the puppy dies? And I'm like, Shepard. Oh, it's a mini Brandon. It's the end. <laughs> well, I like dogs. I think they're cute. I just, uh, I don't know. You don't like to like come sit next to you when you're watching TV. I, I actually, uh, I know this sounds counterintuitive. I would rather have like the, the, the worst thing about my dog Cooper is he's just so stinking big. Like, I like smaller dogs, not necessarily like I can fit in a purse, but like like more of like a medium size. I can jump You're on the couch. He's a big person, and you think Cooper's big comparatively to you? Cooper's enormous. Like what? you don't think Coop, my dog is large? No, He's I have a huge. sixty-five pound pit bull, and I'm like, man, come on, snuggle up and read a book. No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, we've come full circle, people. We've done philosophy. We? We've done dogs. <laughs> we've, we've come all around. It's yes. time to wrap it up today. It is. Any other uh, final statements that you think the world should know before we leave? Um, no, I'll just stack up all my theological objections to what you said, and we'll just, we'll do it over lunch. Okay, I'd be happy to destroy <laughs> I'm you. I'm just kidding. We destroy strongholds. <laughs> uh, right. Thanks for joining us. This guys. was fun. All right, we'll. Uh, I'll see you later. We'll see you later. I guess somewhere on the internet. <laughs> it's always out there. Have a good day, guys. Bye. Yeah.